All right, welcome back to the listener's commentary on the Gospel of Mark. The listener's commentary is a crowdfunded, listener-supported Bible teaching project that is made possible by the generosity of folks just like you. So thank you so much for your support. Thank you for making this possible. You're making an impact all around the world as thousands of people in places that don't even have access to consistent Bible teaching are being able to study the Word of God together with the listener's commentary. So thanks a ton for that. And if you want to join the team of supporters, you can go to thelistenerscommentary.com and click the Give button, and it'll redirect you to a page where you can set up a one-time or a monthly donation. All right, in this recording, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 7, verse 24 through 37. And in context, Mark has just told us about more conflict with the Pharisees. This time, the issue was ritual washing customs. And Jesus has said that those kinds of things, including even the food laws of the Old Testament, those things aren't what make people unclean. What makes a person clean or unclean is really the character of the heart. That's the key issue. And on the heels of that, Jesus takes his disciples, and it was to them that he really made the point clear about clean and unclean. Well, Jesus takes his disciples now on a lengthy trip into Gentile lands. And that's important because that continues to break down some of their categories of thinking about clean and unclean, right? Because the Gentiles were, as non-Jews, were viewed by particularly practicing Jews, conservative Jews, as unclean, filthy Gentiles. And, and certainly the Messiah was coming to rid the world and rid the, the land of those Gentiles. Well, now Jesus travels outside of the land of Israel into Gentile lands, and he does ministry there which then continues to help the disciples break down some of those categories in their thinking. Now, one of the interesting things about this section here in Mark 7, 24 and following is the geography. It's actually caused some people some confusion because the geography is rather circuitous. Jesus doesn't go in the direction some people think he should have gone and all of that. And yet, as a Jewish scholar says, place names in biblical narrative aren't just geographical facts. They're actually important pieces of the literary message. And what that means is that Mark is telling us a message by the mention of these place names. He mentions Tyre and then Sidon and then the Decapolis. He's not just communicating an itinerary. In fact, itinerary wasn't his major concern. He may have, probably did, actually compress the story into a shorter account. And who knows, there's probably other stops along the way that Jesus made. And Mark just is told to highlight a couple of those stories. And besides all that, efficiency may be our modern concern. Like, okay, we're going to go in this really efficient, orderly little trip. That may be our modern concern. But why does that have to be Jesus's concern? So the main thing is Jesus' point in taking the disciples on this trip and Mark's point in telling us about the trip. And what is that point? Well, the point is that Jesus' ministry and message was also for the Gentiles. That's really the main thing happening here. In fact, Jesus' activity in the region of Tyre and Sidon, as mentioned here in Mark 7, echoes Elijah's ministry from the Old Testament in the same area in 1 Kings 17. And it really illustrates the same message, that God actually cares for the non-Jews. So here's how the story unfolds in Mark 7, 24. Now, Jesus got up and went from there to the region of Tyre. 
Tyre was a fairly prominent city. It was northwest of Galilee, up on the coast of the Mediterranean. Notice the text here says in verse 24, he went to, not necessarily to Tyre itself, but to the region of Tyre. And the region associated with Tyre was actually a fairly large geographical region with other towns on dependent on Tyre and all of that. So we're not sure if he was actually in the city of Tyre itself or just in the region associated with the, the city of Tyre, but he's somewhere in the region of Tyre. And when he had entered a house, he wanted no one to know about it, and yet he could not escape notice. Mark never tells us exactly why Jesus left Galilee. But it seems like it had something to do with maybe wanting to get away for a while. He's trying to escape notice, maybe to avoid crowds, uh, maybe to get away from the growing conflict in Galilee that had been going, right? Maybe to focus a little bit more on teaching the 12 and helping them learn some things he felt like they needed to learn. Uh, maybe a combination of all of that. But here in the region of Tyre, even there, Jesus could not escape notice. His reputation has preceded him in some regard. In fact, Mark has already noted in Mark 3, 7 through 8, that Jesus' reputation has spread to the area of Tyre and Sidon. And so he can't escape notice. And verse 25, after hearing about him, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately came and fell at his feet. So because his reputation has really already expanded into this region and he's well known even here, when this woman hears that he's in the area and hears about him being nearby, she comes to him. And here's how Mark describes this woman in verse 26. Now, the woman was a Gentile of Syrophoenician descent. And so she's a woman. She's a Gentile woman, and she's of Syrophoenician descent. And uh, Syro refers to Syria, and then Phoenician was a seafaring people who had settled on the coast of the Mediterranean. That's her background. He wants us to know that this is who she is. She is specifically from this region. Her whole descent is from this region. She's a Gentile woman. And all three of these things you know, give Jesus, at least culturally, good reasons to avoid her, ignore her, right? Not uh, talk to her or anything like that. But she comes, she falls before Jesus, and she repeatedly asks him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And this already tells us something about her. She has confidence in Jesus. She's insistent and persistent. She doesn't just ask him once. She repeatedly asked him to cast the demon out. And in view of her persistence and her insistence, Jesus engages with her. And this leads to a fascinating little interchange between her and Jesus. And here's the way it unfolds. Verse 27, And he was saying to her, Let the children be satisfied first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, in context, children refers to the Jews, the children of Israel. In fact, Matthew's account of the same story in his gospel, he makes this explicit. Jesus says he was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, Matthew 15, 24. And so the children are the Jews. And then the dogs refer to the Gentiles. And the Jews considered dogs to be unclean animals, not like lovable pets like we might think of dogs. They were scavengers in the streets and they were unclean animals. But it's interesting 
that Jesus uses a variation of the word dog that can mean little dog. And based on how this woman's going to respond to what Jesus said, that's how the woman takes it. She takes it as a little dog that might actually uh, be at your feet under the table, might actually be in where you're eating, um, like the little dog under the table. And so Jesus isn't necessarily talking about a large semi-wild guard dog or a large scavenger dog roaming the streets. He's talking about a little dog. So that softens his words just a little bit. I also think it's important to note that Jesus does seem to suggest uh, not that the Gentiles will never be fed from him and his ministry, but that the Jews need to be fed first. In other words, the primary focus of his ministry at this time are the Jews. So let the children be satisfied first. Then eventually the Gentiles will get it. Jesus' words seem to be, probably are likely intended to be, a little bit provocative to see how this woman is going to respond. She's been insistent and persistent, so how persistent will she be? Well, she hears his words, and I gather from her response that his tone must have been soft. He, she sees his face, and once again, I would have to gather, knowing Jesus as well as her response to him, that his face and his eyes must have been warm, and her determination and her confidence in him doesn't waver. She, she responds to Jesus' words like this, verse 28, but she answered and said to him, yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. So she acknowledges what he said, and she's not put off. She says, just give me a few crumbs. Just give me a few crumbs that can fall from the children's table. Notice she even calls him Lord. Yes, Lord. In fact, she's the only person in Mark's gospel to use this title for Jesus. She's the only person to specifically call Jesus Lord in all of Mark's gospel. So her confidence in him remains the same. Her trust in him is still there, and she doesn't give up. She hears his words and probably the provocative nature of them, and she's quick-witted, she's determined, and she's filled with faith and confidence, both in his ability and his graciousness, and Jesus loves it. Look at verse 29, and he said to her, because of this answer, go, the demon has gone out of your daughter, and after going back to her home, she found the child lying on the bed, and the demon gone. And so her response, her faith, her quick-witted determination, her insistence and her persistence. Jesus loves it, and he responds by healing her daughter. And I have to imagine that the disciples watching this, there's a powerful implicit les lesson for them in this about who Jesus loves and who he cares for and who has faith. And here's this woman demonstrating real deep faith in Jesus. Then Mark continues the scene by describing Jesus' journey into another Gentile area, the region of the Decapolis. And so, verse 31, he left the region of Tyre, and he came through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee within the region of the Decapolis. And so, Sidon was to the north of Tyre. That's part of the circuitous nature of this journey. Instead of going back down to the Sea of Galilee, he goes up north, and then back down and around, and then onto the east side of the Sea of Galilee within the region of the Decapolis. And all of these uh, 
areas are Gentile lands. Uh, in fact, the Decapolis we've been to before when Jesus healed the man who had the legion of demons. That's in the Decapolis. And so we've been there. It's on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. That's where this next snapshot takes place, verse 32. And there in the Decapolis, they brought to him one who was deaf and had difficulty speaking. And they begged him to lay his hands on them. Laying your hands on someone was really a request for healing. So they're asking Jesus to heal him. And this, this man is deaf and doesn't speak well. Interestingly enough, the word for that he had difficulty speaking it's only used here in the New Testament, and then the only other place it's used in all of biblical literature is in the Greek translation, the Septuagint, of Isaiah 35.6. And Isaiah 35.6 refers to the healing of the deaf and the mute in the days of the Messiah, the days of fulfillment. And so it seems like there's probably an intentional allusion, verbal connection to that passage there in Isaiah 35, 6. Well, they come, they ask Jesus to heal this friend of theirs. And verse 33, Jesus took him aside from the crowd by himself, just like in the healing of Jairus's daughter when he sent the crowd away. Jesus wants this guy by himself to heal. And we're not told why, but Jesus actually does this kind of thing in several miracles in Mark's gospel. So he takes this guy away from the crowd by himself. And then the way Jesus heals the man is actually told with great detail by Mark. Here's what Mark says. He takes the guy, he puts his fingers in his ears, and then after spitting, he touched his tongue. My translation says with the saliva, but that's not in the Greek. It's actually supplied. So it just says he touched his tongue and he looked up to heaven with a deep sigh. And he said to him, Ephetha, which translated means be opened. Now, Jesus frequently heals by touch, but only here in Mark's gospel does Jesus touch the, the specific body part that needs to be healed. In this case, the ears and the tongue. And it seems like Jesus is using touch to communicate how he's going to heal this man. Remember, this guy can't hear and he can't talk. And so it seems like he's touching his ears, touching his tongue to communicate that he's going to fix those two parts of this man's body. But why the spit? Why does he spit? Well, we're just not sure. Uh, Jesus actually uses spit in Mark 8.23, and you also see it in John 9.6 as well in miracles there. So he uses spit in a couple places, and spit was widely viewed, surprisingly to us, in the ancient world as both kind of a medicinal thing, as well as having maybe at times some sort of like magical properties, healing properties or something like that. But we're not told why Jesus did this. Why did he spit? We're not told where he spit. And we're not told what he did with the spit. And this particular translation that I'm looking at, the New American Standard, uh, they've, they've added that he touched his tongue with the spit. And I suppose that's possible. It's just that with the spit is not in the original language. It just says he touched his tongue. And so we don't know what he did with the spit or where the spit went. If he just spit on the ground, maybe as part of some sort of like visual communication to the guy, not sure. But he touches his ears, touches his tongue, looks up to heaven and sighing. Both of those seem to... Uh, communicate the idea of earnest prayer, looking up to heaven where God is, and then groaning or sighing seems to suggest earnest prayer. All of these actions 
uh, are probably visible forms of communication to the man, as well as the onlookers. He's pulled them away from the crowd, but they're, they're still probably able to see him. So they're visible forms of communication, particularly to the man, of what Jesus is going to do and that he is calling on his God to do it. And then he speaks the word of command that affects the healing. Be opened. And verse 35 tells us that his ears were opened and the impediment of his tongue was removed and he began speaking plainly. It wasn't that he couldn't make any sounds before. He just couldn't speak clearly because of his hearing impediment. And so now he began speaking perfectly clearly, perfectly plainly. And verse 36, Jesus gave them orders, them notice the crowd, the man, as well as the whole crowd, not to tell anyone. But the more he ordered them, the more widely they continued to proclaim it. This command is actually surprising. We've seen this before, right? That Jesus tells people, don't tell anyone about it. But he's typically done that when he's in Jewish territory. Here he's in Gentile territory. And the last time he was here in the Decapolis, when he cast out the legion of demons, he told that man to go and tell people what God had done for him. So my guess is that the reason we have this command now here in the Decapolis is because Jesus' reputation has grown so much, even on this side of the Sea of Galilee, that he's trying to keep things in check. He's trying to minimize hostility, right? Things are, he can feel the heat rising. He can see the, the, the hostility growing. And so he's even trying to keep things under control on this side of the lake because he wants to finish the training of the 12 and finish his work before the authorities finally just decide to arrest him. Does it work? Well, no, it doesn't. And Mark notes that for us, that the more he ordered them to keep quiet about it, the more widely they continued to proclaim it. And verse 37 says, and they were utterly astonished at what Jesus had done and said, he has done all things well. He does all things good. He makes even those who are deaf hear and those who are unable to talk speak. And again, this this really harkens back to some of those those prophecies, particularly that passage in Isaiah 35, that when Messiah comes, when the when the promises are fulfilled, this is going to be one of the evidences of it. This is going to be one of the things that happen. In fact, Isaiah 35, 5 and 6, here's the way it reads. It says, Then the eyes of those who are blind will be opened, and the ears of those who are deaf will be unstopped. Then those who limp will leap like deer, and the tongue of those who cannot speak will shout for joy, for waters will burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. And again, this is a picture of someday um, God is going to restore all things. Someday um, God is going to make all things new. And when that happens, here's what's going to happen. Things like blindness and deafness and lameness and even uh, inability to talk, all of that's going to be removed and all things are going to be made new. And here in Mark chapter 7, Mark is saying it's happening. It's beginning to happen right now in and through Jesus. And these kinds of acts where Jesus does these things, where he heals people, these, these acts are like signposts of the Lord's intent to renew all things. They're like signposts pointing forward to the day when all of creation will be made new and that Jesus is the king who is going to make this happen. He's the one who's beginning the process then and pointing forward to the day when everything that's wrong with creation will be eliminated. And I think it's important to keep in mind that these two miracles happen in Gentile territories. Even they, 
even the Gentiles, are going to be included in the restoration of all things.